right. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And this is tonight is regarding Ezra's prayer. Let's begin in chapter 9, reading verses 1 through 4. And it says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, that is Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair on my, of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. When these things were done, these words seem to suggest that the leaders came to Ezra right away after the things that took place in chapter 8. At this time in our, in our study, it's about four months that have passed between the events of chapter 8 and chapter 9. Ezra arrived on the first day of the fifth month, according to chapter 7, verse 9. He deposited or put the treasure back into the temple on the fourth day of the fifth month, in chapter 8, 33. The assembly that took place soon after the leader's uh, report took place on the 20th day of the ninth month. That's uh, next week in chapter 10, verse 9. The delivery of the royal orders to the regional governor may have taken weeks, maybe months. It was after Ezra had delivered the decree and returned to Jerusalem to again rebuild the temple that he got the word from the leaders. It says here, the people have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Both the leaders and the people of Israel had failed to stay separated from the Gentiles who lived in the land. That is, those who didn't know God. They weren't God's people. The same kind of problem existed in Zerubbabel's day and back in chapter 6, verse 21. Now, the abominations of the Canaanites that he speaks about here is the men of Israel. He says, they married women from these people, that is, from the heathen nations, and they have taken them as wives and for their sons as well. So he says, the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Now, listen to what it says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 through 6. The law of God was, now the mixed multitude who were among them, among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. The mixed multitude left with the children of Israel from Egypt. And when this mixed multitude, when they were together, the mixed multitude, you know, caused these problems with God's people. They began to complain. The cravings of the flesh of the mixed multitude began to rub off onto God's people. And they began to complain about what they didn't have. And our life is dried up. And all we have is this manna that you have given us that kept them alive for 40 years in the wilderness. They were ungrateful. 
The word abominations is found in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, and the prophets. Again, they're found there in those first five books. In verse 1 here, we have the cause of Ezra's grief. Psalm 119, 136, rivers of water run down from my eyes because, they, because men do not keep your law. Ezra was grieving because they didn't keep God's word. God's law was broken when they began to marry the heathen people. God's holy people had married, married heathen strangers. God had separated the people of Israel to himself. Listen to Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the children of the Lord your God. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So for God's people to have this kind of a relationship with these heathen uh, and these intermingling marriages, uh, it, it, it was, uh, it, again, it was against God's law. This kind of a relationship was against God's law. Deuteronomy 7, 3, 4, here's the law. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And here's why. Because they will turn your sons away from following me. And that's exactly what happened here. The marriages of God's children with, with, the, with children of Satan is wicked. It's a blow against the gospel of Christ. It's a, it's a stain against the word of God. And as a result of these marriages, the, the God's people were drawn into the heathens' abominations. And this might have been what was expected. This was probably what was constantly predicted in Exodus 34, verses 15 through 17. Uh, listen to what it says. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. The Jews had let down their guard and they married their heathen neighbors who were not just heathen neighbors. They were God's enemies. They were the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. And it led to doing the things that their heathen neighbors did. Why? Because they didn't separate themselves from them. They went to deep immorality and idolatry. And in some cases, they probably didn't even get married. Because the heathen of that day didn't pay much attention to formal marriage any more than unbelievers do today. We're told that we live in a progressive age. Oh, that we have new freedoms. That our thinking has evolved and we're more open-minded. We're more civilized today. Really? We're not much different from the pagan people of Ezra's day. Reading what happened in Ezra's day sounds just like today. We're still just as immoral, ungodly, if not worse today. The effect of these unequally yoked Christians is really sad. But since the time of the judges, Israelite men married pagan women and then accepted their religious practices. They got caught up in it. It happened again only a generation after Ezra. Now, opposition to mixed marriages, understand, it, it wasn't because of racial prejudice. The Jews and non-Jews of this area were of the same Jewish background. The reasons for opposition to the mixed marriages were strictly spiritual. 
strictly spiritual. There are three types of marriage partnerships. First of all, there's a marriage of a man and a woman who don't know God. Now, they might find some happiness, but they miss the third dimension of life, which is the spiritual dimension. Secondly, there's a marriage of a man and a woman where one knows God and one doesn't. And that's what we have here in the case of Ezra and the, Ezra and the people. And in this case, we have two people trying to pull together when they're headed in two different directions. And then third, there's a marriage of a man and a woman who are both believers in Christ. And when both partners are in the right relationship with God and under his direction, they have marriage at its best. A person who married a pagan was likely to adopt that person's pagan beliefs and practices. And that's what happened here. And that was the sin. That's what grieved and broke uh, Ezra's heart. They disobeyed the law of God. If the Israelites were insensitive enough to disobey God in something as important as marriage, they wouldn't be strong enough to stand strong against their spouse's idolatry. And until the Israelites finally stopped this practice, idolatry continued to be a, a constant problem for God's people. And then in verse 2, we see that the, the disobedience of God's law was widespread. The rulers were involved. The civil and spiritual rulers. Notice verse 2, it says, The leaders and rulers, notice, have been foremost in this trespass. They were the greatest offenders. They were the worst offenders because of their position, which increased their responsibilities. They should have been examples. Those who are up front better have their goodness up front for everybody to see. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required of them. The people, not only the leaders, but the people were involved in this sin as well. It shows us that sin is contagious. I mean, what foolishness and what heartache is suffered because leaders do it. How demoralizing to a people when the corruption is in high places. The rulers couldn't rebuke the people because the rulers themselves were doing the same thing. And it was the, the fact was undeniable. It was told to Ezra by the leaders what was going on. They themselves are also in the sin. Here they were confessing their sin. Notice how powerful our conscience is. They were confessing their sin. You can't hide sin forever. And on the day of judgment, all the things that we did in the dark will be brought to the light. This return remnant is in a sad and sick spiritual condition. Now, there are a lot of things that Ezra could have done to try to turn this situation around. He could have said, hey, guys, we're going to have a program of devotion. I'm going to teach you about devotion. He could have raised the Israeli flag and everybody would rally around it. He could have displayed the Star of David and, 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 and just hyped everybody up, got them all stirred up. He could have had, held great rallies on royalty. He could have held a marriage conference. He could have said, hey, you guys, you know what? I'm, I'm going to offer some marriage counseling, so you know, get in line. He might have given powerful speeches condemning the intermarriage and immorality and idolatry that they were doing. Or he could have followed another thing, another method. He could have formed an organization and try a recovery program for these couples who had gone into this immorality. I mean, that's how we do it today. Or he could have followed another method, 
I'm sorry, but, but he didn't do any of those things. What Ezra did was praise God that he did this. Praise God that Ezra wasn't familiar with the th- way we do things today. But notice what Ezra did. It's something that we don't see much in our day. Notice in verse 3, it says that we can see how deeply Ezra was grieved. Ezra didn't arrive in his native land until about 75 years after the first group that was led there by Zerubbabel. When Ezra, got, when Ezra arrived with his group, he found the temple had been rebuilt, but not the walls of the city. And he found the people were in a sad and sick spiritual condition. They had intermingled and intermarried with the heathen. Immorality and idolatry was out of control because there was a lack of separation and, and the Jews were a miserably, uh, miserable and collapsing group. Now, when all of this was brought to Ezra's attention, he was totally overwhelmed and he was displeased that God's people would drop to such a low spiritual level. Today, we talk about the apostasy of the church, but... Are we as concerned about it as we should be? Many Christians think, well, it really doesn't concern me, but it does. You see, it's really easy for you and me to point our finger at what's wrong, but, but notice what Ezra did. He was so overwhelmed by the sin of his people, it says that, that he says, I sat down astonished. He sat down astonished. He was just blown away by the sin of the people. And his silence was, was deafening. His silence was an expression of the shock that he was in. He was stunned by what had happened. He was overwhelmed by the pending judgments of God on, on this guilty people. And he says, I took, he says, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled the hair from my head and my beard. Now, this was, this was an expression of the deep grief that was in his heart. And the picture of, of, of tearing his, his cloak and his shirt and pulling the hair from his head and beard, it's, a, it's really a picture of, of him tearing his heart. The tearing of his heart. What Ezra did showed how, how he saw his nation's honor injured. His nation's honor was injured by joining God's holy people with the people of the land. And that being the case, then what does he say about us? That, what does that say about us today? God's people are being Im- intimidated today into joining the people of the land and accepting all kinds of heathen uh, experiences and lifestyles. It doesn't bother them today. They're, again, they're feeling like, hey, everybody's doing it. We saw this last week. We talked about this. That, and, and why shouldn't we? It must be the right thing to do. But Ezra didn't attack and criticize them, which is pretty typical of what a lot of people do today. Look what, what Ezra did next. Look at verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This is a, a great picture here. The people did something here that a lot of people, including Christians, don't do today. Tremble before God. Psalm 114.7 says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. How many people really take the word of God seriously? Do you truly believe in the authority of the Bible? 
does it really, truly impact the way you live then? There are a lot of people who say they have a love for God. That they love the Word of God. And they go to Bible study and they have their pens and their markers. They have their highlighters. They have their notebooks and they journal. They have their study Bibles and they're all marked up and they got all their notes in there to prove that they love God. But the sad thing is that their own lives don't show it. They're not doing anything about it. They say that they believe the Word of God, but it has no significant effect on their lives. They don't tremble at the Word of God. Or I should say they don't tremble at the God of the Word because there's no fear of the God of the Bible. 1 Peter 1.17 said, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, listen to what he says, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Peter said, You are to live your entire life on this earth in the fear of God. <clears throat> we are to live our entire life on this earth in the fear of God. Moses trembled on Mount Sinai when it, in the fear of God because the mountain shook and it trembled when God gave the law. Like the men of the world, they say, God is love. And He is. And it's, and it's wonderful to know that God is love. But God is more than that. Our God is a holy God and God is going to punish sin and that's what's troubling Ezra. Warren Wiersbe said, the result of Bible knowledge ought to be obedience and service, a living commitment to the Word of God. Ezra said, I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice because of the sins of those who had been led astray. Ezra was shocked and he was stunned by all of this. Does it concern us? How much do we believe the Word of God? And it would do us all a lot of good if we got alone with God and we asked ourselves these questions. Do I really believe God's word? Do I really obey God's word? Jesus said, if you love me, and here's the, the, the test for loving, loving Christ. If you love me, Jesus, keep my commandments. The inference is if you don't keep them, you don't love me. It's impossible for a person to belong to a holy God without that relationship being reproduced in their life through holy living. And this is the real meaning of the biblical idea of holiness. Someone said, God isn't glorified as much by preaching or teaching or anything else as he is by holy living. Verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Another beautiful picture here. Here's Ezra, the leader of his nation, a prince of the Persian Empire. His clothes are torn. His hair and his beard plucked out. He's on his knees. His hands are open in this quiet sadness that he's going through. He's surrounded by the best uh, men of his people, all of them trembling, trembling at the word of God. 
Notice he's kneeling. Kneeling is the right attitude for prayer. It shows submission. Paul said in Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. We need to think twice about how hypocritical it is to bow our knee before the Lord when there's no bowing of the heart. When there's no submission of the soul. But thank God that that body posture isn't as important to prayer as the position of the heart. Scriptures give us different examples of postures. But it's the attitude and the position of the heart that is the most important. Now it says his hands were spread before God. What does it mean to spread out your hands to God? It means that you're not hiding anything from him, that you've surrendered to him, that you are ready to receive from him whatever he has for you. It means when you go to him in prayer, that your mind and your soul stand naked, totally naked before God. Ezra went before God with his hands open. Ezra wasn't holding anything back from God. Paul said it like this in 1 Timothy 2.8. So, where, so wherever you assemble, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. We need to remember that in our prayer, in our prayer lives. And here in verse 5, we learn that the only way to God is through the, through the blood sacrifice. Ezra saw his people's need and how great it was. He saw the frustration of sin, the the, the irritation and the annoyance of sin. He saw the dark clouds of judgment that were gathering off in the distance. And the more he thought about it, the darker those clouds grew. He saw there's no escaping God's judgment, and there's not. Nobody is going to escape the judgment of God. His anxiety was, was terrible. His anxiety was terrible until the eyes of his heart saw the ray of hope in that dark moment. Now he's encouraged to pray. Now God has given him a way out. And the idea of sacrifice would never have come to the mind of of man unless God had put it there. And even then, he can't be sure that God would accept it. God has made his way known to us. And he made it known right after the fall. And it was even more officially established in the Levitical law when it was written and confirmed by all the miracles of the Exodus and fulfilled on the cross of Christ. Here we learn that we must humbly approach God. The torn garment and robe is a sign of of Ezra's personal grief at the dishonor that was done to God and and of the wickedness of his people and, and their resulting fearful punishment and then in verses 6 through 15 we have Ezra's prayer while the smoke from the altar went up to heaven from the evening sacrifice there's Ezra at the temple of the Lord he's there with his clothes torn his messy hair and beard he's bowed on his knees with his hands lifted and he's pouring out the sins in his grief and in his fear of judgment look at verse 6 And I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. He says, oh, my God, I am too ashamed to look at you. Notice how he included himself in this prayer. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, their iniquities. 
have risen higher than their heads, and their guilt has grown up to them. He says, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. You see, it's easy to always point to somebody else. It's easy to distance yourself from the church. And there's no doubt that the church is in bad shape. And churches fail sometimes because imperfect imperfect people attend and they're led by imperfect people. It's amazing how God has us to lead and guide the church. A lot of, of people uh, 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 use Christians and, and the, the church's failures as reasons for not going to church or not becoming a Christian. But I like what Warren Worsby says. He said, I'd rather be a struggling Christian and an imperfect church than a perfect sinner outside the church. One of the church fathers said that the church was something like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the judgment on the outside, you could never stand the smell on the inside. That's heavy. He said, it's not their sin, God. It's our sin. And if the church is an apostasy, then we're an apostasy. Lord, it's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's me. Lord, we stand in need of prayer. Verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. Notice, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. He speaks about the sword here in verse 7. The sword speaks of death. And that's what sin promises. The wages of sin is death. Promises to be the, uh, you know, and sin tells us that, that sin is, makes life wonderful, that it's the, the life of the party, but nothing is a greater killjoy than sin. Then after uh, the sword, it speaks of the captivity. Scap- captivity speaks of slavery. Sin always enslaves. It always puts us in bondage. It doesn't bring freedom. And many sinners say that they're free to do whatever they please and that they're not restricted as they say Christians are. But in reality, sinners are the ones who are bound and enslaved by sin. And then plunder. The word plunder here means the treasures that the army takes from the enemy when it's defeated. And the way it applies here is that sin takes away the things that are valuable to the sinner. It takes away the things that are valuable from the sinner, the things that are most important. Sin leaves us barren. It leaves us without any good thing, and it empties us of worth. It takes away great character and spiritual blessings from us. Sin robs us. And the greatest thievery is especially when it robs us of eternity. Sin promises great gain, but it leaves you absolutely nothing. And then lastly, it mentions humiliation here in verse 7. Humiliation speaks of shame. Sin caused Israel a lot of shame when it was defeated by their enemy and and they were taken away from their land. You see, sin shames the sinner. Sin promises glory and it promises honor and everything good, but it brings dishonor instead. And the worst shame for sin is the shame the sinner will experience before God's judgment throne. Verse 8. 
And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. This is a, this is a great verse. Ezra says, We have now, we have had now for a little while, grace. The 75 years of captivity is over. God has allowed His people to go back to their land. And what do they do? They turn around and off they go again, following the heathen. This was so often their pattern. Doing the very same thing that had sent them to the captivity in the first place. Ezra says, there's just a remnant of us. These Jews, this remnant, obeyed God enough to go back to the land. Most of the Jews didn't return to the land. Those who did were just a remnant. Now, the word remnant, according to Strong's Concordance, means to remain or to be left over. A remnant is what survives after a catastrophe. In Ezra, the word often refers to those Israelites who survived the exile and returned to resettle in the promised land. The prophets used the word to speak not only of a group of Israelites who served a particular catastrophe, but to those Israelites who remained faithful to God. And notice what he says there in verse 9. He says, uh, verse 8, And to give us a peg, to give us a peg in His holy place. Do you know what that, the, the word peg means Nail. That nail is Christ. Jesus was nailed on the cross down here that we might be nailed at the throne, figuratively speaking, the throne of God for eternity. Listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 22, verse 22 through 23. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so that he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him, notice, as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So believers are nailed up there, not to a cross, but in heaven for eternity. We are secured there. You see, a nail is, is fixed in a sure place. What a great illustration this is. The Jews were saved, but they lost a lot of their blessings and reward. Just like many of us are saved today, but many won't get any reward at all or they'll miss many blessings and rewards. Our God has opened our eyes and He's brightened our eyes and He's given us some relief from our slavery. Notice Ezra's prayer in verse 9. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Jerusalem and Judah. So here Ezra's prayer continues. God was wonderful to His people here. They confessed their sin, and God is going to bless them. Look at verses 10 through 15 now. And now, our God... What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. 
Now therefore do not grieve your daughters as wi- give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day." Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. In other words, Ezra is saying, thank you, God, that we didn't get all that we had coming to us. He said, man, we deserve so much more punishment for our sins than we got. Ezra recognized that if God gave the people the justice they deserved, hey, they wouldn't be able to stand before him. And how many times do we ask God for justice to be fair when we've been treated badly? But we forget that because of our own sin, we truly deserve the righteous judgment of God. But how blessed we are that God gives us mercy and grace rather than only justice. Thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve. We wouldn't be here right now. We'd all be in hell if we got what we really deserved. The only mercy of God, it's only the mercy of God and the confession of sin and the sacrifice of Christ and the grace of God that could make it possible for him to save his people and us, to restore and to revive them. God is going to do all of these things because of Ezra's prayer. The remnant that was there will cry out to God for his mercy. And when we take that, that position, when we take that position of mercy, not a position, oh God, I've been good and I deserve you know, a, a fairness and I deserve this and oh, and I, you, know, you should give me this. No, when we take the position of that we need mercy, then God is ready to listen to us. In closing, Ezra's heartfelt prayer gives us a good perspective on sin. First of all, Ezra recognized that sin is serious in verse 6. Second, he recognized that no one sins without affecting others, verse 7. Third, Ezra recognized that he wasn't sinless, even though he didn't have a heathen wife, verse 10. And fourth, he recognized that God's love and mercy had spared the nation from the judgment of God when they didn't deserve to be spared. In other words, it's real easy to look at sin lightly in a world that sees that sin to them is no big deal. But we need to and should see sin as seriously as Ezra saw sin. Joseph calls sin a great wickedness. In Genesis 39.9, a great wickedness. And that's the way we should look at sin too. Father, again, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Father, for Ezra and, and 
Father, the lesson that we have before us, God. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father, that you don't give us what we deserve, God. Because we deserve hell. Father, we thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you for taking the cross. For taking our sins upon your back, God. For the pouring out of your blood to cleanse us of all of our sins. And you promised to, con- to, to cleanse us of all of our sins if we would confess our sins. We must confess our sins. The blood of Christ, the cleansing blood of Christ cannot help us, will not help us if we do not confess and admit our sins. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ. And you take, you've taken sin lightly. And you think there won't be any consequences for your sin. And that you'll escape the judgment of God. You're so wrong. No one will escape the judgment of God unless they come to Christ who paid the price for those sins. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship right now. And if if you're here tonight and, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you don't know Him as Lord, but you understand now your need for Him, and that you'll never make it to heaven without Him, You'll never escape the judgment of God without him. Then as we spend this time in worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray a simple prayer of faith.